Welcome to the Experience ANU podcast on iTunes. The ANU campus is always alive with plenty to see, hear and do. This talk comes from the ANU College of Law. If you're interested in finding out more about events at ANU, then visit us at anu.edu.au forward slash events or follow us on Twitter at ANU underscore events. We update the ANU podcast regularly, so make sure you subscribe to never miss a talk. My name is Stephen Bottomley. I'm Dean of the ANU College of Law. And on behalf of the college, it's a great pleasure to welcome you to uh, this, the 17th annual SOAR lecture to be delivered this evening by Deborah Glass. Um, before I go any further, and most importantly, I acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands we are meeting uh, this evening, and I pay my respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal people, past and present. Deborah will shortly be introduced by my colleague, uh, Professor Kim Rubenstein, uh, but I just want to say a few very quick words about the significance of this event for, for the college. Um, the SOAR lecture is one of this college's key annual events. You know, we sort of mark it out right at the beginning of the year and it's something we very much uh, look forward to. Um, it sits alongside another of those key events, our annual public law weekend conference. We call it the weekend conference, even though these days it's not held on a weekend. Those little academic um, uh, quirks are important to hang on to, I feel. Uh, and many of you will be attending that conference uh, tomorrow. So, this lecture this evening has really a double significance. Um, first of all, it continues um, our recognition and celebration of the seminal contribution which Geoffrey Saw made to this law school, indeed he was its inaugural dean, to legal scholarship more generally. And secondly, it highlights uh, one of the great strengths of this college, and that is our expertise and our scholarship in the field of public law generally, and especially uh, administrative law, which of course we will be recognising uh, in great detail uh, tomorrow. That's enough from me. It's my pleasure now to hand over to Kim Rubenstein, Director of our Centre for International and Public Law, to introduce our speaker. Thank you, Stephen, and I too join him in acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we are meeting and pay my respects to their elders past and present. As Director of the Centre, I'm really delighted to be welcoming our guest speaker this evening. But before I do, I just wanted to add another couple of words about the SOAR lecture and its place in the public law, the Centre for International and Public Law's world. As uh, Stephen has indicated, of course, it is to commemorate the role of Professor SOAR who was appointed in 1950 at the age of 40. Um, and one of our former dean, Professor Michael Coper's first acts on assuming the deanship of the, ANU, of the ANU Law School was to join with my predecessor, Professor Hilary Charlesworth, in uh, inaugurating in 1998 this annual lecture. And of course, it's had very many eminent speakers in the past, um, and we're so delighted to be continuing in that eminence with tonight's um, speaker. 
In uh, the process of updating the centre's uh, website, you might also have noticed, I don't know if any of you went to look for a bit more information before coming this evening, that we now have a bit of information about um, Professor Saw up on the website. And in addition, you'll see that there is a link to several of the oral histories that were done with Professor Saw through the National Library of Australia. So I indulged myself a little just today in advance of preparing to listen to some of um, that material. And I would really urge you to dip in and out, to listen to the richness of um, Professor Saw's voice. It was done when he was in his 80s. But his recollections and the wisdom that you can hear in his voice is so inspiring and it really affirmed to me how important it is to have a named lecture in his honour. And important too to choose um, and in invite uh, people to address us who can really add to the richness of public law. And in thinking of um, inviting someone this evening and in light of the fact that I knew that we were um, had chosen to mark um, Professor Pearce's contributions to public law, with the arrival of the new uh, Ombudsman in Victoria, it, uh, it presented itself to me as a perfect match in having an Ombudsman present the annual public, um, the annual SOAR lecture in advance of this weekend's, or this Friday's public law weekend. Now, um, for those of you who hail from Melbourne, and there are quite a few of us in the room, you will um, perhaps recognise that Deborah is, was in fact raised in Melbourne and is a graduate of Monash University and we have some of the former eminent pro um, professors from Monash sitting here in this room as well. Um, some of Deborah's former teachers, I believe. Deborah practised as a lawyer in Melbourne before joining Citicorp, the Citicorp Investment Bank in Switzerland. Um, and she was appointed to the Hong Kong Securities and Futures Commission at its inception in 1989 and she was instrumental in raising the standards for the Hong Kong investment management industry, becoming a senior director. Then, upon moving to London in 1998, she was the chief executive of the Investment Management Regulatory Ombudsman, uh, Organisation, sorry, which was a self-regulatory body being merged into the Financial Services Authority, which occurred with its complete merger in 2000. She was then placed in the more, well, up what I would assume, challenging role of the UK Police Complaints Authority and in 2004 became a commissioner of the newly constituted IPCC and then she was appointed deputy chair in 2008. Of course, um, Deborah has recently stepped down as deputy chair of that um, Independent Police Complaints Commission of England and Wales after completing a 10-year term with the IPCC in March of 2014. Only six months into her role as the current Victorian Ombudsman, I welcome Deborah Glass. Thank you very much, Kim, for that kind introduction. And I'm very honoured to be giving this talk named after the distinguished first professor of law at the ANU and just before the public law weekend in honour of the former Commonwealth Ombudsman, Dennis Pearce. I have to tell you, only in Canberra is Friday regarded as the weekend. Uh, I'm also very honoured to have somebody here, one of the people who has inspired me the most at university, Ron McCallum, um, a true believer in justice. I did actually give a, a lecture at Monash um, two nights ago, and, uh, and I did say at the start of that that, you know, that Monash had... Um, helped instill in me, you know, the, the values of social justice. 
you know, that I practice to this day, although it didn't um, inspire me much of a love of the law and lawyers. Um, but I know that I stand in, in delivering this lecture in the footsteps of some, you know, pretty uh, important legal luminaries. I've seen the list. And uh, I hope that my distinguished legal audience tonight will not be too upset if I do not cite a single case uh, or even say anything at all about natural justice, as known and loved by admin lawyers the world over, and I know there are a few of you also in this room. What I want to talk about this evening is an ombudsman's perspective on justice, or more specifically, my perspective, as I know my colleagues in this world are more than capable of speaking for themselves. When presenting my perspective, I will be talking not only about for my current role, but also the perspective of the world of police complaints in the United Kingdom that uh, I left behind with not, with, with not a lot of regret. So I'll be covering why ombudsman, why do we have one, what was the justice gap, the role of the ombudsman in access to justice, some perspectives on justice, and finally, how natural is it? Starting with the origin of the ombudsman. Most people here will be aware that ombudsman is an old Swedish word that means, loosely translated, defender of the people. Those familiar with ombudsman arcana will also be aware that the ombudsman has been around in Sweden since 1809 when the king decided that some institution independent of the executive was needed in order to ensure that laws and statutes were observed. But the role of the defender of the people is actually much older than that. And it's been around in various forms in different parts of the world for rather more than 200 years. We can, in fact, go back to ancient Rome. The tribunus, in particular, the tribunes of the plebs acted as a check on the authority of the patricians in the Senate, holding the power to intervene on behalf of the plebeians and to veto unfavorable legislation. Sadly, this power began to wane towards the end of the Republic and had well and truly lost its origins by the time the Senate bestowed tribune power on Julius Caesar, who as a patrician was not eligible to become a tribune, but became one anyway. And in Korea, the secret royal inspector, a feature of the Joseon dynasty of 1509 to 1892. He was a kind of uh, mystery shopper for justice. He was an undercover official appointed by the king to monitor government officials while traveling incognito. Their job was in fact to protect the public. In secret, they would observe local officials and their proceedings. Then they would reveal themselves, inspect the records. And if they found cases that had been unjustly judged, they would preside in retrial to redress wrongs. Incidentally, although this system was apparently very effective in reducing corruption in the provinces, it was quite a dangerous job. And the secret royal inspectors had quite a low survival rate. But moving into the more contemporary ombudsman role, New Zealand was the first country in the Commonwealth to establish an ombudsman's office back in 1962. 
followed in 1966 by the United Kingdom. Hansard records some fascinating debate about the merits or otherwise of such an institution. In New Zealand, the question was posed, is the bill we are discussing tonight a piece of political window dressing? Or does it represent an important step forward in constitutional practice? Four years later, the Brits were rather more positive, describing the role as the greatest constitutional amendment that this House of Commons has ever approached since the days when universal suffrage became applicable to our electoral system. In New Zealand, the idea of an ombudsman was variously described as a busybody, or a snooper, or even a menace. There are probably quite a few politicians and public servants 50 years later who would agree with that. And there was much toing and froing over the extent of the ombudsman's powers. Would he, and of course it would be a he, address the provision of that newfangled device, the telephone? Be able to assess the value of land? Be trustworthy enough? They debated the size of the office in the hope that the ombudsman's office would not be an opportunity for empire building. On this issue, there was great reassurance offered by the Attorney General that the Danish ombudsman, who was the model for the New Zealand office, only had 11 staff and didn't actually contemplate they would ever need any more than that. They now have about 70 people. But the point was made over and over again that the balance between the citizen and the state has over a long period been swinging more and more in favour of the state. This concentration of power in the state has made it all the more essential in a democracy that the citizen should be protected against the abuses of power. Not so much the conscious or malicious abuses of power, I refer to the genuine mistakes, misjudgments, and what may be termed unreasonable decisions which are inevitable wherever power is exercised. The UK debates considered the scope slightly differently. A positive definition of maladministration is far more difficult to achieve. We might have made an attempt to catalogue all of the qualities which might count for maladministration by a civil servant. It would be a wonderful exercise. Bias, neglect, inattention, Delay, incompetence, inaptitude, perversity, turpitude, arbitrariness, and so on. It would be a long and interesting list. The New Zealanders were also conscious of the important effect of having an ombudsman. The very existence of someone to whom the public can turn will be a comfort, and in the case of the chronic malcontents, could even be psychotherapeutic. The commissioner, would even become known as the great healer. This passage was quoted in the Victorian debates in 1973, when Barry Jones, then member for Melbourne, added, it did not turn out quite like that. Westminster MPs debated at length whether the proposed parliamentary commissioner, they really did not like the term ombudsman, would resolve the problems presented to them by their constituents, including of dead badgers, war widows' pensions, and the Metropolitan Police. But ultimately, they too agreed with their New Zealand counterparts of four years before that, and I quote, 
the relationship of the individual citizen to the state is one of the oldest and most intractable problems in our democracy. It has become infinitely more urgent because of the growing impact of government on the individual in our society. And that the bill was designed to humanize relationships between the politician, the civil servant, and the individual citizen. So turning to my patch, Victoria was the third Australian jurisdiction to rise to the challenge of addressing administrative unfairness with the passing of the Ombudsman Act in 1973. After Western Australia in 1971 and South Australia in 1972. It must be one of the few major reforms of the period that we can't credit to Gough Whitlam. In fact, Victoria might have been the first Australian state to have an ombudsman. The Victorian Labour Party had a private member's bill to set up an ombudsman in 1966. And this bill had cross-party support, but was vetoed by then-Premier Henry Bolte. It was eventually introduced by the Liberal Hamer government, and the comments by Sir George Reid, the Attorney General, are remarkably consistent with the New Zealand debate of 10 years earlier, when he said, public servants often lock themselves into a defensive position. It would be extremely helpful to the democratic process if partisans knew that an independent and impartial person appointed by Parliament had access to files and would report directly to us as a Parliament. And just to throw in a, a few personal favourites from the Victorian debate, I urge that the remuneration of the Ombudsman should be given careful consideration by the persons responsible. It is useless expecting to obtain the best man if he is offered the salary of a second division public servant. And another rather less prescient, I do not envisage that the Ombudsman will be loaded down with complaints. But most importantly, on the general effect of an ombudsman, it is difficult to prove, but one can assume this inhibits the actions of public servants. They know that what they do will be open to scrutiny in a way in which they could not be scrutinized by a court. So the ombudsman is there, effectively, to fill what has become an increasingly wide justice gap between the individual and the state. Whether or not that extends to psychotherapeutic benefit is probably open to question. But the debates do illustrate that ombudsmen were ahead of the curve in terms of alternative justice solutions, a different kind of scrutiny, more accessible, less black letter, more adaptable, more widely available. What now of the role of the ombudsman in providing access to justice? Well, the early parliamentary debates also say something about the position of the ombudsman vis-a-vis -vis the courts. Or of the courts may frighten away someone with a genuine case simply because he lacks knowledge or experience, or because the proceedings may be excessively cumbersome, time-consuming, or expensive. Ombudsmen look at a particular tranche of complaint, often outside the remit of courts, but alongside these developments, there have been other changes in legal thinking and a shift in community expectations. Our system has been critically assessed from both within and without over the past few decades and found by many, including my predecessor George Brower, to be wanting. 
that Professor Ari Freiberg has so usefully set out in his work on non-adversarial justice, our adversarial system has been copying it. And we've seen the rise and rise of various types of justice, restorative, collaborative, and participatory, to name a few, as well as increasing emphasis on dispute resolution in its different forms. And to quote Ari, some of these new paradigms reflect a dissatisfaction or frustration with the adversarial system and the way it resolves or fails to resolve conflicts. So you could see these developments in the legal sphere as reflecting a public interest in more just outcomes and the legal and legislative innovations to meet that standard. The Productivity Commission has recently looked into the role of ombudsmen in providing access to justice. In their draft report, we're still awaiting the final one, they comment that ombudsmen provide a mechanism for resolving low-value disputes, help to overcome power imbalances, address systemic issues, and are simple to use. In my submission to the Productivity Commission in May, I pointed out that the average cost of resolving a jurisdictional complaint by my office was $640. That is, of course, the cost to the taxpayer, not to the complainant to whom the service is free. This compares rather strikingly with the mean legal cost to the plaintiff alone, as estimated also by the Productivity Commission, of $61,000 in the Supreme Court and $110,000 in the Federal Court. And on timeliness, last year, my office concluded 92% of jurisdictional cases within 30 days. Compare that to the 32% of cases pending in the Supreme and Federal Courts over 12 months. Ombudsmen provide a service that is free, fair, relatively fast, and independent. Courts are also independent. Whether they are fair probably depends on where you land in the adversarial system, and they're certainly not free or fast. That's not the only difference. It would be a mistake to characterize ombudsmen as simply providing a, a kind of low-cost and speedy form of alternative dispute resolution, as opposed to courts, which dispense a more valuable and considered form of expensive justice. Let me highlight two other key differences. First, Ombudsmen have considerable powers. I have the coercive powers of the Royal Commission in carrying out investigations. While the existence of these powers can sometimes be controversial, in my view, they are very necessary. As I've said many times to nervous public servants since taking on the role, the most impactful powers are the ones you don't need to use because everyone knows you have them. They are the reason why, when my staff suggest to an agency that they apologize or pay compensation to achieve a just outcome, the agency almost invariably agrees. I also have own motion powers, which mean I can launch an investigation into any area of my jurisdiction where I have concerns, whether or not in response to a complaint. And of course, I have the power to table reports in Parliament. Now these powers are, I think, particularly relevant to that unofficial part of the Ombudsman's functions that is not set out in the legislation, which is to get under the skin of the government of the day, whoever that government is. And a further equally important difference. As the Productivity Commission report notes, 
ombudsmen are also able to resolve non-legal issues. Ombudsmen do not determine disputes based on the law alone. They also consider good industry practice and what is just, fair and reasonable in all the circumstances. My office received over 30,000 complaints last year, many about matters out of our jurisdiction, which says something about how complicated and confusing the system is to navigate, but very many that were. And the information and advice my staff gave to these people was very important to their finding justice. Those responses ranged from simply providing advice, brokering a resolution with the agency, which could include compensation or an apology, or requiring the agency to explain and substantiate its actions. Very few led to formal investigation and formal recommendations. Unlike the courts, my office does not make binding decisions and does not determine the law. Precedent is a consideration, but does not overshadow my goal of providing a fair and reasonable outcome for the particular complaint. This gives me the ability to take a broader view of what is fair and reasonable in the circumstances, to humanize the bureaucracy and provide a different kind of scrutiny. So how does my office deliver administrative justice? Well, a strict application of the law will not do it. Take the case of Mr. and Mrs. Fawzi. When a landslip cut off access to their family farm in Gippsland in eastern Victoria, in a place delightfully known as Jumbuck, their local council and other agencies spent the next year arguing who was going to fix the road. When were they going to fix it? How are they going to fix it? Different agencies commissioned reports and referred them on to other agencies. In the meantime, the Fawzi's sheep were dying. Eventually, they contacted the Ombudsman's office. Two weeks after the start of the Ombudsman's investigation, and 19 months after the landslip, the council fixed the road. I wasn't in the role at the time, but I can guess this was the result of what the Attorney General, introducing the bill in 1973, described as the persuasive powers of the Ombudsman. The council probably did not have a legal duty to reinstate the road, and I doubt that a court would have provided a remedy for the Fawzis. But an ombudsman can think, how fair and reasonable is it for an elderly couple who rely on a public road to be left without access to their home while their livestock die? I think most people acquainted with the Fawzis' story would think that a just outcome was achieved by my office. I'd like now to turn to perspectives on justice, which, like beauty, is in the eye of the beholder. In my previous role, dealing with police complaints, or more often deaths following police contact, in the United Kingdom, justice was about achieving someone's personal mission. And any outcome short of that was plainly injustice. Nowhere is this more starkly illustrated than in the case of a fatal police shooting. Many incidents involving the police will spark off justice campaigns. But the family of someone shot dead by the police, particularly if they're young, and even more particularly if they are black, the only outcome delivering justice is a trial and conviction for murder for the police officer firing the shot. 
Justice, from the standpoint of the police, is quite a different thing. For the police, justice is a swift recognition that they were just doing their job, protecting the public, according to a law that allows them to use reasonable force when absolutely necessary. So when you are the independent body, sitting between those two polarised perspectives, charged with delivering an outcome that is fair and evidence-based, there is a very good chance that no matter how thorough and professional your investigation, no one will be happy with it. But being independent doesn't mean being neutral. It is in the nature of the ombudsman's role, and I'm going back here to the origins of humanising the bureaucracy, that we are essentially human, and that to do the job properly, we must never forget our humanity. This was powerfully illustrated for me in one of the last cases I dealt with in the United Kingdom. About a year before the end of my term at the IPCC, an explosive new report was published into the Hillsborough disaster, in which 96 people, all Liverpool Football Club fans, had died in a massive crush at Sheffield, at Hillsborough Stadium, at the start of an FA Cup semi-final, 23 years before, on the 15th of April, 1989. Of course, all the usual inquiries followed such a disaster, Judicial inquiry, criminal investigation, inquests, and a series of legal challenges to those proceedings, including a private prosecution of two police officers and European court proceedings to seek a fresh inquest. They all failed. The official inquest verdicts were accidental death, and the myth abounded for decades that the Liverpool fans were responsible for the tragedy because drunk and ticketless fans rushed the gates. The families of those who died, many of them children and teenagers, would not give up. They wanted justice. They lobbied every successive new British government for another inquiry, another review of the Hillsborough disaster. The new Labour government of 1997 appointed a High Court judge to consider if there was fresh evidence to warrant a further official inquiry. Lord Justice Stuart Smith concluded in 1998 that there wasn't. The new Conservative government was similarly lobbied. The decision in 2009 was to effectively waive the 30-year rule withholding public records to enable disclosure of all documents relating to the disaster. There'd been enough inquiries. What was needed was a permanent official record. An independent panel was set up to create this official record, obtaining all of the documents from all parties and constructing a narrative around the evidence obtained. It was that narrative that was published to such powerful effect in September 2012. As the Prime Minister David Cameron said that day in the House of Commons, 
The new evidence that we are presented with today makes clear that these families have suffered a double injustice. The injustice of the appalling events, the failure of the state to protect their loved ones, and the indefensible wait to get to the truth. And the injustice of the denigration of the deceased, that they were somehow at fault for their own deaths. At the time, I was the deputy chair, the senior operational commissioner of the IPCC. I was heading into the last year of my term, anticipating that I would be quietly mentoring my successors. I was being replaced by two people, which was a gratifying indication of the workload I was carrying. And I was beginning to think about what to do next. But what was the appropriate response to the screaming headlines and the national outcry of something must be done? And of course, given the role of the police in the events of that fateful day in 1989, questions would be asked of the IPCC. My natural instinct is to be very wary of the something must be done response, so beloved of politicians everywhere. All too often, it's about creating tomorrow's headline rather than coming up with sound long-term solutions. So I issued a very short, we will consider this type statement. And I began reading the 395-page report, which was backed by some 450,000 pages of evidence. There was no public expectation that the IPCC would, in fact, do something. Hillsborough had been investigated under the supervision of its largely powerless predecessor back in 1989, and it was assumed that however unsatisfactory the outcome, the matter was long closed. But I read the report, which did not make any direct allegations against any individual or organization, but presented a compelling picture of potential criminality or misconduct. Even though it had all happened 23 years before and would be incredibly difficult to investigate, I remember thinking the IPCC was set up as a direct result of the lack of public confidence in the police investigating themselves in serious cases. This is our core business. If we don't do this, who will? And if we don't do this, something as serious as this, how can we justify our existence? So I took the decision to launch an investigation into the aftermath. The outcry for justice for the families, survivors, and the community required a different approach, a more human approach than the traditional response. And I said at the time, I'm very mindful that while many of the families and others are in the wider community are eager to see justice after so many years of denial, our investigation will be looking into matters that happened some 23 years ago and the passage of time is inevitably damaging to an investigation. Potential suspects retire beyond the reach of misconduct proceedings and die beyond the reach of criminal proceedings. Memories fade or disappear, and it may not be possible to fill all of the gaps in the documentary records, nor should we underestimate the massive complexity of the task before us. But justice demands that we do whatever is possible 
to investigate culpability for any offence that may have been committed and to do so thoroughly and fairly. The families have already waited 23 years. I want to give them my assurance that we will do everything in our power to investigate these serious and disturbing matters with the careful and robust scrutiny they deserve. That was the easy part. We had no infrastructure in place. We had to find a building somewhere in Liverpool with all the attendant bureaucracy of the government property unit. We had to recruit staff, and they couldn't all be ex-cops. We had to build the biggest criminal investigation database in Europe. None of this happens quickly. But that was also easy compared to the biggest challenge, building confidence in the investigation. Confidence of the families and survivors, confidence of the wider public, particularly in Liverpool, confidence of the police, they would be treated fairly. The campaign groups had some high-profile supporters who were not fans of the IPCC, who, among others, were promoting the narrative, we were not up to the job. Now, soon after launching the investigation, I went to Liverpool to meet the two main family campaign groups. The groups themselves didn't even talk to each other, and neither wanted me to talk to the other. So even the timetabling was a challenge. I remember my first meeting with one of the groups. Campaign headquarters was a shop front across the road from the Anfield Stadium where people gathered upstairs for meetings. It was November and it was freezing. I walked in with some colleagues into a cold room full of people with stony faces. I was wearing a red puffer jacket for the journey and I kept it on all evening. The walls were covered with photos and other memorabilia, people who died or survived and been traumatised. I asked if they'd introduced themselves, and they did, as wife of, brother of, mother of, one of those who died or survived and been traumatised by it. When it was my turn to speak, I was silent for a moment. And then I reflected on the walls around us, and I said, I would not pretend to understand their grief and suffering, but that I saw it, and I heard it, and I could see it was still raw. Even after 23 years. And I said, I don't expect you to trust me or my organisation. Why should you? You've been let down by officialdom everywhere for so long. You've been let down by judges, coroners, the police, prosecutors. Why should you trust this upstart executive body? But I said, trust us on what we do, not on what others say about us. I said it would be long and difficult, and I could make no promises about the outcome but that I was deeply committed to finding the answers. And the faces were, I think, a little less stony on departure. And I remember feeling exhausted, but somehow satisfied when the Liverpool train pulled into London at about midnight. And those meetings continued. 
They could be very challenging. Why is investigation taking so long? People are dying. How many more will be dead before this investigation is over? Why haven't you prosecuted anyone yet? The task was made harder, not easier, by the family's lawyers, who were very critical of the IPCC and would say so publicly at pre-inquest hearings where we were regularly attacked, not having made enough progress. And throughout all of this, I was asking myself, what does success look like? The families and survivors do not even want the same thing. For some, justice was getting a new inquest. For others, it would be an unlawful killing verdict. But for many others, justice was police officers in the dock and in prison. I could not promise that. So I had not only to manage expectations, but to maintain a vision of an achievable and fair outcome. I also knew that we could be carrying out the most thorough investigation in history, but if people did not have confidence in it, it was worthless. So building the communications function was as important as the investigation itself. This isn't about spin. It was building knowledge and understanding of complicated and occasionally arcane criminal justice processes, that for every statement that is taken, there is a week of research in the massive document archive, that you cannot simply scan 100,000 documents into the system, that every single one must be read into the database. If you do not build an investigation on the rock-solid foundation of process, any criminal investigation down the track will surely fail. We invited the families and survivors into the new Hillsborough office, invited them to walk around and meet the staff, show them the room full of evidence, the painstaking process of investigation. It was slow take-up at first, but a few came. I told my staff we've got to arrange 96 separate visits or more, we would do it. And they came in groups, and the MPs came, then the media. Nearly a year after my initial announcement, I launched a witness appeal. There was scepticism at first from my staff. Could we handle this? It was high risk. From the public, why now, 24 years later? But the time was right. We had the resources, the people, the systems in place to handle it. We got the backing of Liverpool Football Club. I took advice from some survivors of the disaster on the language to use and the support to put in place. And it worked. Over 500 people in the first 48 hours. Over 1,300 in the first week. Fan site blogs supported the appeal. And that turned the corner for us. We had stuck it out, taken the blows, put in the hard yards, and Liverpool was thawing. But what made it all the most worthwhile was the parting response of the families. I'd written to everyone to tell them my term was coming to an end and I was therefore handing over the investigation. And in that letter, I reflected on the previous year and what it had meant to me. Reflecting on the impact of the courage and determination of these extraordinary, ordinary people who never stopped fighting for justice for their loved ones. The following week, 
I went to my last pre-inquest hearing. The chairman of one of the family groups came up to me to thank me for the letter and to wish me well. Then he said to me, I want you to know, Deborah, I've given a copy of your letter to Mr Mansfield, the family's barrister, and I've told him to lay off you. In my business, it doesn't get any better than that. But taking a stand also carries risks. It was already being murmured in the police camp that if there were prosecutions, they would seek to run an abusive process argument on the basis that my public statements were evidence of bias in the investigation. If that happens, I shall have to trust that British judges do not have too wildly different a view of justice. But it illustrates the difficult path an ombudsman must sometimes tread. If I had not taken a public stand, there would have been no investigation, or certainly not an effective one. If I had not worked to build the confidence of the families, it would have been a huge, expensive, and ultimately pointless exercise. So what will justice look like for Hillsborough? This remains to be seen. Both inquests and investigations are ongoing, and whatever the outcome of either, the likelihood of legal challenge must be extremely high. I am tempted to quote Shakespeare on this subject, but I won't. So how natural is justice? If there is a message in the cases I've illustrated, it is that justice needs work. It doesn't come naturally. The case of the Fawzies in their farm and the many thousands of other cases dealt with by my office and others like it every year illustrate that justice does not just happen. But it comes about, we hope, because we can make decisions through the lens of fairness, not just the law. The Hillsborough case is perhaps an extreme example. It is the fight for justice the fire that burns in people's bellies when confronted by what they believe to be injustice that resulted in the huge investigation that goes on to this day. We need a diverse system of justice with many different cogs. Sometimes we need to know with precision what the law is. Sometimes we need a determination of fact. Sometimes a binding decision. We should not, however, lose sight that the legal response developed for a class of problems should also be shaped by the need to be practical. Proportionate responses are part of our system of law. Not every matter can or should be taken to the High Court. So the Ombudsman is part of the system of proportionate remedies available to those who believe they have been treated unfairly. Sometimes the Ombudsman is the best option because time is of the essence before another sheep dies. Sometimes people need somewhere they can go where they won't risk financial ruin if they lose. And sometimes the ombudsman, not bound by nor creating precedent, can better reflect the community's broader sense of justice, like helping the Fawzies to go home. The Irish statesman Edmund Burke had it right at least in this respect. It is not what a lawyer tells me I may do, 
but what humanity, reason, and justice tell me I ought to do. It is the guiding principle of ombudsman the world over, and I commend it to you. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine? ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more.